But this morning, we're going to be kind of all over the place. We're going to be in Proverbs 3, 5 through um, 8, and we're going to go to Matthew 6. And I take you here because we've been in the gospel now for some time, but uh, which has been necessary and important to lay that foundation, and we will continue to go through that, but for this week, we're going to take a little break. This is the first passage that I, one of the first passages that I memorized as a young believer. There are certain passages that you should just know, right? Uh, you shouldn't need to go to your Bible for. In Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 is one of those passages. Um, in James 1, 5, right? John three sixteen. There's a lot of passages that you should just know that, that are just in your heart. Anyone likes wisdom, let him ask of God. Yeah, okay, that's an important one. If you like wisdom, you want to have that in your head, right? If anyone needs peace, you cast your anxieties upon him. He cares for you, right? And he'll, the peace that passes understanding will guard your heart to minds in Christ Jesus. That's an important one, Philippians 4, 4 through 10, so forth. But those are, those are like fundamental passages that you kind of should know. And, and these, these passages we're going to talk about today, you should at least have Proverbs memorized for sure. 100% because it's so fundamental to the foundational, presuppositional foundations of your life. Uh, and Matthew 6 would be Jesus's sort of discussion of expanding that, that Proverbs 3 discussion. So let's look at it. <clears throat> in the, um, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, for it will bring healing to your body and nourishment or refreshment to your bones. So, trust in the Lord. Now, in our case, it's Jesus, right? We would no longer say trust in Yahweh because we don't trust in Yahweh like that. We trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, as now the manifestation of Yahweh, and he's given us the name to call him, and it's not not that name anymore. Some people say, oh, we worship Yahweh. No, we worship the Father, and we worship Jesus Christ. We, we, we don't, um, he doesn't, if, if he transliterated the word Yahweh into Greek, then we would call him Yahweh, but he doesn't. He gives his name, technically, it's Isa or Isa, uh, but we call him Jesus, which is fine. I'm sure he doesn't really care as long as we know who we're talking about, uh, our dialect. But that being said, trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Now, there's this important distinction here. Because this goes back to Romans 10, 9, and 10. Remember in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it says, believe in your heart, right? God raised it that... Uh, that uh, God raised him from the dead and then confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So the believing in your heart part, that's important. And it's reiterated right here. You would start with believing with all your heart. Before you speak, before you praise him, before you do an action, before you go forth, you have to establish in your own mind what you believe about God and the only way, only source of information you have about God is His Word. 
right? What he's told you. Anything other than that is subjective and you really don't, can't stand on it. You can't, you can't formulate confidence, establish confidence, make a stand on anything if you don't have data, right? So obviously, in order to trust him, you have to be seeking to know him, which is what he's going to say. He says, trust him with all your heart. And here's a problem that happens with many people. They, they miss the word, which word they miss? All. All. A lot of people will trust him, 20%. <laughs> They'll trust him 50%. They'll trust him 80%. He says, trust the Lord with all your heart. All of it. All. And that's important. Because you don't want to be a double-minded man unstable in all your ways. You don't want to ask for wisdom not believing you're not going to get it and therefore not get it. Say, see, God didn't give me wisdom. <laughs> if you ask not believing. Remember I've said this. If you, go, if you approach the scriptures or you approach God faithless, you will not be rewarded. You will not be rewarded with faith, faithlessness. Faithlessness is not rewarded. And the word trust is the word faith or the word believe, right? So believe in the Lord or trust in Jesus. Trust in the Father with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Again, once again, what understanding do I lean upon? Well, it's the Word. And to be honest with you, it's learning the Word is like walking through mud. It, it, uh, and from a flesh standpoint, it's arduous, it's slow, it um, can be annoying. And I mean mud of a deep kind, where you're, you know, because there's such a learning curve, right? We have translation, translation issues, we have ignorance, we have um, old words that don't mean anything to us anymore, like propitiation or sanctification, we never use that. Um, I never, I've never said, Beth, will you please sanctify that glass for my dinner? <laughs> you know, in other words, would you please set that glass apart for me to use for dinner? I've never said that. We don't know what that means. That means nothing to us, right? Unless you know what it means, which means you've walked through the mud, not only have gotten... Um, the struggle of understanding just the text itself, but then you have to deal with 400-year-old King James words that absolutely mean nothing to me, you know, in, a, in, a, in our modern age of, of being raised up with a dialect and the language and the vocab and all that that we have today. So it is difficult to learn if, you know, if, if you, the more ignorant you are, the, the, the more strenuous it becomes. Um, that being said, most of us aren't ignorant, at least at this point in life. And so it's not as difficult as it would normally be. But you cannot trust in Him in daily life if you don't know what you're doing, right? Um, there's so many illustrations uh, that we'll talk about, but we'll keep reading and we'll, we'll jump to Matthew. In all your ways, you see the word acknowledge? Does it say acknowledge? In the Hebrew, it's the word know. It's not the word acknowledge. 
And I like that. It, it's a very important distinction. I remember first breaking this down and diagramming it in the Hebrew. And it struck me because it makes more sense. To acknowledge him is like giving the old head nod, right? <laughs> you, <Man upstairs. laughs> you, the man upstairs, yeah. No. The old after the victory speech, right? I just want to thank God, my pipe sponsor, the man upstairs, and whoever else is going on. Uh, at least the one thing they got rid of is there is a man upstairs, and that is Jesus, you know. But, um, but uh, in this case, it's in all your ways, not acknowledge him. This is in, in, in all your ways, know him. This stuck out to me and has for many years because if you're going to work with your father as a kid, it's impossible to work efficiently or effectively unless you actually know the way he thinks, right? You know him. You understand his motive. You understand his, his purpose. You understand what he's trying to accomplish, you saw Jesus constantly trying to give the Pharisees and the Sadducees this sort of update, right? If you had known what this meant, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, right? In other words, they did not know the Father. What did he say in John 17? I think it's verse 3. This is eternal life, that you may know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Everything is based upon knowing him. It's, um, it's interesting, you know, I don't often fall into the normal mold because when people ask me, well, I got you into this, blah, blah, blah. Well, what got me into doing what I do is I sought to know him. I sought to know the Father and Jesus Christ because I didn't know him. When I got saved, it was like, well, okay, now I'm in a relationship with, this, with the Creator and I really know nothing about him and now I've got to get to know him. And so it was a no-brainer to me. Uh, I was a very poor reader and extremely ignorant, and my vocabulary was awful back in the old days. And consequently, I, to keep from struggling with that, I got the Bible on, on, on tape back in the day. And... I put it on and I would at work, I would have the Bible open and I would read it or I would listen to it and I would have the Bible open and I would have a pencil and I would write down questions as it came along because I, I didn't know what a killick was. I didn't know what a wineskin was. I didn't know why, why, why. Like, what's this and why is that? Why did he say this and why did he say that? So I got to know him by listening to Matthew 50, 60, 70 times. If it was, I don't know how many times it was. I didn't count in that way. I just know that it went on for years. And um, you end up, because you can go through Matthew in two and a half hours. That means in Matthew, I can crank out Matthew four times in a day. And so I would go through it like that. So I'd make it just crank it. Boom, 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 boom. Until my head was like, you know, and Jesus said this. Da, 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 da. Jesus said, so somebody could quote it and I would quote the rest of it. So, you know, this is what's before it, that's what it's after it. I just got to know him. Because in my mind, the Bible isn't a book to be read. The Bible is God's, you know, diary, if you will, for me to read, for me to get to know him. This is his information for me. But the point is, for me, I know, like I can tell you guys, get in the Word, read the Word, blah, blah, blah. 
And you think, oh, I gotta add it to my plate. For me, it was an absolute desire. When it says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Um, that's exactly how I felt. And there was nothing gonna get in the way from me, between me knowing him that I could do. I got, I, I, Beth knows about it. I got a job working in a used tire shop just so I could um, do that because not many jobs would allow me to have the Bible on the back. The guy was a Christian and, and he allowed me to uh, have the Bible on the back and I kept it back there and on tape and I had my Bibles open and I had one in the front. And I just kind of cranked away every day. And I did that for three years. Uh, just in that one location. I didn't stop after three years. But in that particular location, I did it for three years. And, uh, and cranked away and ended up going pretty much through the Bible multiple times to the point to where I largely memorized it in not verbatim, but almost in many, many, many places. Um, I say not verbatim, but when they would be quoting, I could quote it all, you know. But if you asked me to quote the whole thing beginning and the end, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> but uh, if you start it, I can finish it, that kind of thing, and generally know where it's at. And that was because I just wanted to know him. I just wanted to know him. And I didn't know where to start. I started in Matthew. And the only reason I started in Matthew is because that's where the New Testament started. And I didn't know the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament or the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. I didn't really understand much. I understood enough to be saved. I understood the, the, the gospel, which was enough to understand the New Covenant. But I didn't understand the Old Covenant in its fullest parameters. But I did seek to know him. And this is what he's saying. In all your ways, know him. So in, in, the, in the endeavors that I have, how am I relating to him as a person? What, like, what is he doing? Right? What is he doing? Is he faithful? If I do this, what is he doing? When Jesus said, I enter into my father's work. If I see him speak, I speak. Whatever he does, I enter into what he's doing. So that's the life that he lives. You say, that's the life of a minister. No, that's the life of a child of God. Every child of God. Every child of God is in the same boat. And you have to get to know him. That means, and, and prayer is, is kind, it's nice, it's sweet. But it doesn't get to know him. It's him getting to know you. But you don't get to know anything about him. Right? Do you learn from prayer? No, you communicate to him through prayer, which is extremely important. You might learn about yourself. You learn about your struggle. You learn about your battle. You learn about your desires. You might remind yourself of texts that you already know through prayer. But in general, you're talking to him. He's not talking to you. This is him talking to us. Jesus Christ being the living word. So getting to know him is imperative. And whatever that means for you, for me, I just use the various techniques that work. And for me, as I've told many of you, it's not just listening to it because my mind will wander. I have to turn it up to a volume that annoys my brain to where I can't wander. To where when my brain wants to run off to the left or the right, it's yelling at me. <clears throat> the, 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 the noise level is too high for my brain to stop thinking about it. It's like... And Jesus said, I'm like, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> Hand comes out of the radio. And... 
and then having it there, stopping, reading it with it, making notes, answering, you know, asking questions. But I did it not to know it. I did it to get to know him, so I believed it. It was believing it. I was seeking to know him because you seek to know him, seek to believe him. And at first, you're going to believe things maybe you shouldn't believe, like, oh, it's old covenant, or you're going to believe stuff that's blah, blah, blah. But the goal is to get to know him. So that when you make a move in life, you know what you're doing. And this is what Matthew 6 is going to talk about a little bit more. So he says, in all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. That means he opens up the doors. He provides the, the um, things, the money, the substance, the substance that you need, the, the wisdom you need uh, to accomplish whatever the path is before you, right? Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he preordained that we walk in them. He predetermined we walk in them. So he has a path. It is straight. I've got to find it. The only way I find the path that is straight for me is to know him. I have to know him though. This is, uh, it's, it's so simple and fundamental. But to learn the word at first is laborious. You have to spend the time seeking to understand. It's amazing to me how many people don't realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are still in the old covenant. Right? Just to say that to 90% of even seminary students and everybody, it's like it never hits them. Oh, yeah, it's New Testament. That doesn't mean it's New Covenant. So when people read it, they think, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's New Testament. No, that's Old Covenant in the New Testament. Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't risen yet. He hadn't been exalted yet. The New Covenant starts when? Acts, Acts chapter two. two. That's when the New Covenant starts. <laughs> you say, not even when Jesus rose. It, it, it is implemented when he ascends to his lordship. Because that's the funny thing that we confess, his lordship. When he ascends and God establishes him as Lord at his right hand, then he sends the Holy Spirit. Now let the games begin, you know, let the new covenant begin. So that's what happens. It's something as simple as that, just getting little things right in your head so when you read it, you go, well, but Jesus said this. Yeah, but Jesus spoke in the old covenant, not the new covenant, and we are in the new covenant. Jesus said this. He also said, go show yourself to the priests and offer the offering that Moses said that he offered, right? So you have to understand the context. And as much as I love Jesus' words as he looks forward into the new covenant, he still speaks in the Old Covenant and is hiding the good news intentionally. Except for a few little people that he whispers it out like the woman at the well or Nicodemus. Besides that, there's not a lot <clears throat> of extensive teaching from him on the New Covenant of what he was intending to accomplish. There's just statements. Well, I believe, and I encourage you to believe, verse 6, and he will make your path straight. Then there's this next statement, which doesn't seem to be necessary, but is. And for me, why is it necessary? I like redundancy from a different angle because the flesh 
is an arrogant, pompous idiot, right, at times. Not all the time, but can be. And when we hear the first words, if somebody's in turmoil, somebody's got a trial going on, somebody's distraught, and I go to them and I say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your path straight. They say, what? Yeah, but. but. <laughs> you don't understand. And I always say, no. You don't understand. You don't understand who we're dealing with here. You don't understand the Heavenly Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke and it was in existence, the one who could easily deal with family matters. All he's got to do is just will it so. He's got to will it so for you to have wealth and you have wealth. For it is God who gives the power to gain wealth. Deuteronomy what? 818, I think it is. And, and, you know, when it comes to wisdom, it's God, God promises to give wisdom. When it comes to provision, he promises to give provision. In other words, these things are easy for God. And if you look in the Old Testament, this is the thing you learn. This is why the Old Testament is valuable. It's not valuable because it's giving me instruction on how to live my daily life, right? It's giving me instruction on how God feels about things and God's righteousness. And sometimes how he felt resulted in his judgment and somehow, sometimes, how he felt resulted in his compassion. And he might have two situations that are identical. Both deserve judgment. He judges on one hand and he shows compassion on the other. The context determines why and who. And you learn about that. And all those questions are important to consider and to, to look at and to understand. And so you get to know him. So it says, be angry and do not sin. You can be angry with God because God is furious at the world. He's furious at the sin of the world that's going on, the evils of the world that's going on. He's furious. His wrath is being stored up, right? Stored up, Romans 1. He's just, he's just stockpiling his anger and he's going to let Jesus carry it out. And I'm supposed to be angry with him, but, but don't sin. Because if God judges the world, he would sin. You know why? Because he's given all judgment to the Son. John 5. And who is the only one in heaven and on earth and under the earth worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll? The Lamb. The Lamb of God. Right? So that means God can't do it. You know why God can't do it? Because he chose to love Adam and not kill Adam. He committed to love and he gave judgment to Christ. It's a technicality, but it's important to understand. Because in the Old Testament, he did open up a can. Right? <laughs> right? He did... He did judge. You know, 36,000 die, 15,000 die, 8,000 die, boom, boom, boom. You know, catch God on a, on, a, on a moment where he's really upset because they want to kill Moses. He's like, that's it, I've had it, we're killing them all. <laughs> Moses is like, hold on, wait a second. Okay, well, I understand your anger, but if you start over with me, most people don't even know that God said he was going to start over with Moses. Like he was going to wipe out all 12 tribes of Israel at one point. Moses said, well, if you do that, my children are just going to turn into the same sinful bunch of brood vipers that they are. So it doesn't really matter. And God was so pleased with his answer, he didn't kill Israel. And so that's a person who did understand. That's why there's only a few people that were God's friend. 
Abraham was called a friend of God. Daniel and um, Moses. That's, to me, the greatest honor. The greatest honor I think you could have is being called God's friend. Because that means you know him well enough that you groove with him. You know, because a true friend, you think of after, after you're 25 years old, uh, you know, childhood friends are your, kind of your closest. They mean the most to you, even to this day, I think, in terms of my childhood friends. Or my, uh, I have the, the most intimate memories and the most trust, even. Even with unbelievers, like, you, you know, that, that uh, your emotions are tied to your childhood friends and the people you grew up with a lot of times. And after 25, you're, you're, the, the intimacy of your friendships get lesser and lesser unless you go in the military or something. They have the foxhole, you know, kind of friends, right? The fa- they, they're family. You know, they, they, they be there for each other, die for each other because they, they got intimate. They learned about each other in the foxhole. They, they were uh, having to depend on each other at a high level. And so it's difficult to become friends the older you get because very few of us have the foxhole experience or the high school experience or the neighborhood childhood experience where you can actually grow intimate with friends and you see your weaknesses and you fight physically and you you argue and you you share happiness and all these things that you do and you build this intimacy. But that's because of the closeness of the situation and the limits of our, of our, our experience. Right, And so you to get to know God, there has to be a pursuit of closeness. Because, as you well know, life is very busy. Right? And, and, and getting to know God isn't just sitting around and contemplating Him. Getting to know Him starts with understanding Him from what He wrote. Not because you're worshiping the book itself, but because you're... you're a, appreciating that he gave me information about him for me to get to know him. I appreciate that. It'd be a bummer if he didn't, right? I'm God. I got this deal going on. Worship me. Figure it out on your own. Wing it. If you're wrong, sorry. I'm going to judge you. If you're right, well, I might bless you. You know, no, he gives us this whole thing about his integrity and how he feels and how his struggle was and what his plan was, what he accomplished, how magnificent it was, how glorious he is, all these details, we have it all. And it's really not that complicated. It's just, for me, walking through the mud was realizing how simple it was as opposed to learning all the details of the complication. The word of God is extremely simple. There's, there's a pre-covenant time. There's <clears throat> the new covenant. When's the new covenant start? Yeah, but when was it spoken of starting? Genesis 3. <laughs> and then uh, Genesis 12, right? <clears throat> and then Genesis 15, and so forth and so on. Genesis 22. In other words, the new covenant was before, was promised first. If, if you will, the new covenant was the first covenant. And then there's the old, there was the old covenant, the interim period, before the new covenant inauguration. And then the new covenant, what we call the new covenant, was really not really the new covenant. It was the, the fulfillment covenant. of the yeah. new covenant that he had spoken of, right? Of the, of the first covenant. The first covenant is actually the new covenant, ironically, because he was going to see the seed of the woman, right? So, <clears throat> yes. 
Isn't acknowledging God synonymous with seeking his face? Because as a father, whenever my kids were doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, they looked at me, they saw my face as to whether or not I approved or didn't approve of what they were doing, which caused them to change their behavior. But would you say that acknowledging him that they already know is sort of like seeking his face to seek approval for whatever choice we make? It's a step deeper than that. It's, it's setting the responsibility on me to know him well enough in advance to make decisions that are in line with the way he thinks, as opposed to looking for his face to see. Because it's not the word to acknowledge or to recognize. It's the word to know, to, to know him. I know that way they translate it is that way, but that's not the Hebrew word. Um, the Hebrew word is know him. It literally just says, in all your ways, know him is what it actually says what? yes why would it say a demon I don't have you know the Hebrew text for myself when I'm learning why does it say acknowledge him though is there a reason they put acknowledge him instead of know him is there something that they saw in that context that acknowledge would be appropriate because most likely you have to understand the form, the etymology of words, and knowledge is in the word acknowledge. Uh, and so the use of a term 400 years ago uh, would mean something differently than it does today, where we think in terms of acknowledge as recognize. And they, t- they think in terms of acknowledge as to know intimately. And so the, the problem isn't with the term, it's with the etymology of the term and how it's changed through the years and how when the changing happened, they didn't update the translation with our changing time to... And if they were just translated it, they were trying to, to emphasize what I'm saying originally. But then it got lost in our day and age by the, if you will, the degradation of the term. Would you say that... In times past, acknowledging would be respect, which would be intimacy, and today, acknowledge is a distance. Like a- yes, like to acknowledge in the past would be to to get to know someone's thinking on a topic, right? So to like if you were at a job and and you have a boss and he has an objective, to acknowledge would be to go. I need to go acknowledge what his perspective is on this and what his goals and accomplishments, what what how, how he wants this thing to look. Then I need to implement that, and so that we're I'm representing him and like there's a direct you know correlation of relationship there and we're accomplishing one thing together. Where today acknowledges boss gave me a task, I'm going to go do it and I'm going to say praise the Lord. You know I'm acknowledging him. And so there's a very different relation, you know, reality there. But in the Hebrew, it's just the word to know. They translated it acknowledge, even though it's, it's not that word. It's not in today's terms. Um, it, it, it bore different weight back in the day. Um, it's like the word uh, honor is the word in the Hebrew. It's the word heavy. We don't translate it heavy. But it's... Um, it's, it means consider the words of your father as heavy, right? And that's the word honor. So honor God is consider heavy God. Consider God's 
to be heavy upon you. So like it's weighty and make sure it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy jacket upon you so you're considering it. And um, so we don't think in terms, we just translate it. Like at a King James, like, well, how do we communicate heavy? Well, uh, uh, honor. Okay, that's good. You know, so there, there wasn't a, these very old words that are, um, are more almost pictorial in nature than, than graphic. Whereas the Greek is certainly more sophisticated where they used more words, they more, more extensive usages of the words uh, to describe things. Whereas in Hebrew, it's, uh, we used to think of it almost more pictorially. Uh, it, it's a pictorial type of uh, language, heavy. Uh, it, uh, to, uh, in his presence is in his face. <laughs> you know, his face, you're in his face. <laughs> so it's these pictures of, of things that are not normal to, for us to say. There's a reason why. Uh, it, so they're just, again, it's an old translation. But uh, it's a it's a beautiful sounding translation, but it misses the mark for our our time um, <clears throat> due to our our ignorance more than anything. And I I used to believe it was that forever until I took Hebrew and then I was diagramming this and I was like oh, it just says to know him. That makes so much more sense, you know. Now I get it, right? Um, that that's what I was doing anyway, and it just was beautiful. So, um, he says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. For it will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Do not be wise in your own eyes. <clears throat> because what we talk about in Christ being a new creation, we often, <clears throat> our flesh will come up with a solution quicker than our spirit can consider it. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the way it's going to be until you mature. Keep Yes. Yeah, that's a profound statement if you consider that what I just said. Your flesh will come up with a solution before your spirit can consider a proper godly solution. Uh, your flesh will go, I got this. Boom. Let's do it this way. I got this. Boom. Do it this way. You don't take time to slow down and consider how love works out, who's involved, what's the situation, what's God's perspective, how I'm relating to Christ in this way. And that, there's a slower process to that in the beginning until you mature. As you mature like an adult, you get faster with your thinking. But uh, being not wise in your own eyes is taking the time to say, okay, is my first thought about how to accomplish this truly wise, truly good, right? Because logically, da 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 Anytime you say the word logically before you go on, it should be an indication that you should pause and consider whether or not your logic is in line with the spectrum, keyword, the spectrum of God's activity. Because logic doesn't always fit into that. Because you have proverbial wisdom, and then you have Matthew 6, is what we're going to turn to next. So turn to Matthew 6. You can take Matthew 6 too far. What's an example of proverbial wisdom, just like for the purposes of contrast? Be like the ant. That says, what's the contrast? I was gonna, that was where I was going to go. Be like the ant who stores up. And blah, 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 right? You've got to make sure you have enough 
for the next winter and for the next and so forth and so on. Ants and squirrels, they store up like like envious little monsters, right? You cut a tree down, they got they got nuts in there from 1967. They're still sitting on. I mean, it's like greedy, and uh, so and so do ants. Like they're endless. They're feverish. They're kind of psycho, right? They don't think in terms of oh, I've got enough and now I'm going to share. They think oh, I've got enough and oh, look, a grasshopper's here. Let's kill him and eat him. You know, like. They don't share. They, they, they keep working, keep working, keep working. All right, so Matthew 6, again, again, one of my top favorite passages. I love Jesus' words. I love when he speaks. He, he is so wise and so amazing. But the, the counter to the proverbial wisdom, because you, you can be the proverbial wisdom guy or you can be the only faith guy, but there's a, there's a balance between the two. And how do you know which one to implement at the time? Ha-ha! Knowing him, knowing him, because it's extremely personal. He didn't ask everybody to give up their home and follow him. He liked going to Nicodemus's house and hanging out in that rich place up on top, the roof where it's cool and having a good meal. He didn't ask Nicodemus and Martha and Mary to sell everything and give it to the poor and follow him. He's like, no, no, I like going to your place. Don't sell everything. Keep that place. It's sweet. And so, but some people needed to give up everything and some people needed to keep their stuff. It's just the way it goes. How do you know which one you are? Don't know. That's for every person to decide for themselves. But I do know this. The truth here is, is, is true regardless in, in, a, in a spectrum of, of reality. Uh, verse 19, chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And where thieves break in and steal, but... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, in, in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's a truism. If you pray for somebody a lot, you think of them a lot, right? If you help someone monetarily, don't you think of them more and then pray for them more? Because wherever you put your heart, your, your treasure, your heart will be, Right? So if you invest your, your prayers, you invest your money, you invest your time into something, that's where your heart ends up being in large measure, percentage-wise. That's so what's very important for a wife invested in her husband and her kids and a man invested in his family primarily because that's where you want your heart to be. <coughs> Side note. Anywho, verse 22 the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear or clean, your whole body is full of light. In other words, if you are a new creation, your whole body is full of light. The question is, how mature are you? But if you, your eye is bad or dirty or unclean, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, how far have you spun down in depravity? Because the reality is, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. On the one hand, you can't serve God and wealth. On the other hand, God's given us all things richly to enjoy. Right? There has to be rich. There has to be poor for love to, to take place. Everybody can't be poor. Then love can't cycle. Everybody can't be rich, then love can't cycle. 
That means there has to be rich and poor for love to cycle. But to serve it is different. The reality is people will deceive themselves. You can't serve God and wealth. It's impossible. And the reason why I say that is because that's where the dilemma is. You can't serve God and wealth, right? Yeah. People will justify not loving the brother uh, in, in a monetary way, particularly here, because you know well, there's all these logical reasons. Blah, 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 blah. Leaning on being wise in their own eyes. And therefore not consider how love works out and what, how knowing God in the situation, how does God feel about that? Does God value that? Because we may make up all these rules about what response, what's responsible. What's responsible, gotta be responsible. Well, what's responsible? Is responsible giving up everything and walking with Jesus? Is responsible not? Well, both are responsible if you're knowing him and how he wants you to live in your own life. Uh, we, I had a home and a property when I was, that was passed down through my um, uh, inheritance. And when I was, what was it, 20, 19 or 20 years old, and I never would have never had to work for a home. We got married, we spent the first few years in that home, a little bitty crummy home, but it was a home. Could have fixed it up over time. And I gave up everything and gave it to my mother for rentals so she could have money to support herself. When I went to California in order to, um, to learn, you know, Greek and Hebrew and all that junk. And so, uh, you know, in order to pursue the Lord, it was just a cost. And then there was another cost. It was, I've given up everything multiple times. You know, a lot of people like they have, they buy something and they've got it and we build up something and then we lose it all and we build up something and lose it all. It's just kind of the way it went. Because sometimes following the Lord meant we had plenty and sometimes it meant we didn't. Just didn't matter. You just have to keep moving forward in the choices you make in order to follow the Lord and let that work itself out. It says, for this reason, verse 25, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, to them, this would be more meaningful because they didn't have systems like we have set up quite so efficiently. If a locust storm came, it would really decimate them, or they didn't have rains, it would really decimate them. Only in some areas would they have canals and things like that that would feed their, their land. They really de- relied upon the summer and fall rains and whatnot a lot, whereas today they can irrigate and do things a lot easier than they used to. But they would worry for their life. He says, for this reason I say, don't worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, the point is simple. God who, who gives the spark of life to the body at conception. By the way, I don't know if you've seen the video of when the... Uh, uh, there's a video of a moment of conception and a, a, a light happens at that moment. It, it brings life to 1 John 1, or John chapter 1, where he says he's the light of all men. Jesus is the light of all men. Where an actual light, electricity, you know, light happens at the moment of conception. It's a really amazing little video. And so the moment he gives life to men, at conception, and holds it together 
as he says in Colossians 1, holds all things together by the word of his power. So he's holding life in existence, allowing life to, to function. Is it easier to, to create a spark of life and hold it into position, or is it easier to feed it a body? Right? Pretty easy deduction. It's much harder to create life and to keep it in existence than it is to feed a human body. Right? That's, that's logical. That's what he's saying. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's easy for him to accomplish things. This is no big deal. What we think is a big deal is not a big deal. Losing everything means nothing and you can gain it back. It amazes me when people lose everything by 30, you know, they gain, they give millions and they'll blow it and some bad thing happens, the deal goes down, stock market crash or whatever. And they, oh, I lost everything. It's like, well, you really didn't start gaining it until you were like 25 a five-year period, now you have all this wisdom. What are you bummed about? You can rebuild it now. The same way you built it the first time. But better, stronger. There's no sense of worrying, especially for a child of God. Now, for a pagan, they should be, they should be worried, as he says, a Gentile. But for us, he continues, look at the birds of the air. For they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the question. Are you not much worth much more than they are? All right. Are you worth more than a bird? Of course. Because you're created in God's image, and therefore your worth is significantly worth more than any of the created creatures. And God is mindful of when the birds fly over, causing the worms to come out or giving them the ability to recognize the little creatures on the ground to go gobble up. I'd like for him to bring them over to eat up all the ticks in our yard before spring. That'd be nice. So, he, he's, are you not much, worth much more than they are? And the answer is, of course. And who of you, by being worried about uh, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life or height length to his life is the idea of the height to his life. Obviously, you can't. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. And if you do look at a, pow- a flower petal under <coughs> a microscope or just really close with a uh, a camera phone. It's it's one of the most beautiful things you could ever see. The weaving and, and the, the the tightness and the, the glory of a flower petal. It's absolutely magnificent, <coughs> magnificently beautiful. And God uses they would use those back in the day. Like my grandmother, she would go out and you'd grab a handful of the, the the dying flowers or the weeds and tall grass, and you yank it out and you use that to start your your oven in the morning. My my grandmother used to have a, a stove like that, and that's what she cooked from. And she did the very thing where she'd go out and grab some 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 kindling, you know, some some dry grass, and which used to be flowers, and you <coughs> use that to start your your oven in the morning. That's why it says throw in the fire, you know. And he says, um, but if but if God so clothe the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. That's what I mean by throwing the furnace. Uh, they would take the little grass and start their fires with it. 
But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, he creates the human body. Is it easier for him to create a human body or is it easier for him to clothe the human body? Well, obviously, it's easy for him to clothe you. But, and considering that his will isn't that you starve and that you, um, and that you walk around naked, it is important to consider that he will care for you in that way. Then he says this, Do not worry, then say, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for you, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He already knows, and that's what I'm saying. Know Him. He already knows. He knows what you need. There's been a few different times. You'd have to maybe one of these days. If I ever talk through my life testimony, I need to like do it on a board, like a series of like you know timeline, so as to show you what it really means. The 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 acts of faith that we've trusted in God. But there was this one part where I was focusing in on, um, on building up the body and trying to understand how to do it properly. And, and some of you know this story, some of you don't, but there was a, that cost me everything to do that. Uh, I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice to, to become someone in the mainstream Christianity thing and become a big name and, and go that route or or perfect building up someone in the body of Christ. And that's why that's my walk has always been to know him and to benefit him. And I believe that it was best for me to learn and to perfect building up someone in the body of Christ. Because I did not believe that the common person can just be insignificant. That every child of God is significant, and every child of God is a priest of God, and can be tremendous asset to Him on the earth as a as a representative and a friend. But when I did that, it cost me. And there was this point where I told God, "Well, the, if we run out of food and I run out of everything, then I'll start looking for secular work again." And I was wore out, very tired, and I was almost. For a time, I was looking for him to do that because I was so tired and exhausted from, from striving. And we got down to the pantry. You know, we had gotten a small lease for six months at this one spot. And we got down to one thing of spaghetti and a half of thing of spaghetti sauce in the fridge. That's all we had. We had enough food for the family, one ream of Costco spaghetti in the pantry. I remember standing there looking at the pantry, it's all that's there. Just one thing of spaghetti. And we had a half, a little less than half, but I remember it visibly. It's burned in my brain. <laughs> less than half of spaghetti sauce. No meat, just spaghetti noodles and sauce. And I was like, good, there it is. God's going to allow it to run out. And he's being clear with me. I don't mind whatever he wants from me. I just want to know. I want the path to be made straight. So my deal with God has always been when you stop providing, I'll stop ministering full time. And, um, and it was there. I thought, yes, this is the answer. And I was relieved. 
Because <laughs> I was tired. You had to understand that there's a lot of suffering that went down through that. And a lot of, a lot of turmoil. When we get down to this point, and this is just one of many, many, many moments, but get down to this point, and I'm staring at it, staring at the pantry, I'm at the pantry, staring at the pantry. <laughs> and I hear somebody, while I'm staring at the pantry, from my memory, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this way I remember it, yelling outside. And we're in this, like, our condo that we were in was up above the garages, and so it was, somebody was parked outside of our garages yelling up to the balcony. And I heard this noise, like, what is all that noise out there? So I turn and walk over, slide the door open, or some dude, hey! Are you Greg Williams? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, he's got a truck full of food from Costco. <laughs> I've never seen him before. I don't never seen him since. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who contacted him. I didn't know who told him we had any needs. In fact, I didn't know that I told anybody that we had any needs, to my knowledge. Um, and I look out, and I was like, I went, thanks. <laughs> That's honest. Because I knew that now the the fight wasn't over and the and the struggle wasn't over. I was happy and 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 had to kind of reboot myself to continue this process of following God and drudging through the, the context. But immediately I was like, Well Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, and here we go, you know. Uh and and so guy comes up, he delivers all the food, shake hands, he leaves, never heard from him since, never heard, it was, I was like $2,000 worth of food, you know, and, and, uh, um, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff where it's, I, I know him, I know how he works, right? And the reason why I say that is because when you understand how he works, going back to something as simple as where he talks about the manna, are you familiar with the story of the manna in the wilderness? Right? They're grumbling, complaining. They're halfway to, uh, to the mountain of Moses. They're halfway there. They're at a place called the, the Rafa something, something. And, and they're, they're in need of some food. And so they're grumbling, of course. You know, he brought us out in the wilderness to die, blah, blah, blah. That was common for them. And um, in fact, let me, let me read just a little bit from Exodus. It's in Exodus 16. Anyway, he takes them through and he, uh, he tells them he's going to provide manna for them. And uh, start verse 2. says, The whole congregation, the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we... Uh, sat by the pots of meat. When we ate bread to full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is the, the flesh's wisdom. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. 
So God's testing them where they walk in his instruction, where they trust him. On the sixth day, when they prepare, they were to bring in two days, twice as much, so they could gather, right? So that on the Sabbath day, they didn't eat, because that was based on the law. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at the evening you, uh, you will know that the Lord has brought you out the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for uh, he, hears in, uh, he hears your grumbling against the Lord, and what uh, are we that you grumble against us? Again, God just points out to them, who are we? What are we? It's like, what do you think you're doing? It's rhetorical. Like, what do you think you're doing that you would grumble against us? I'm God. I created everything. What are you doing? Why not just chill out and ask on how God's going to do it? How God's going to resolve the problem? We know he loves us. We know he brought us out. So how God... Getting hungry isn't a reason to doubt him. Be happy. Lose a little weight. And then wait for him to solve the problem, right? Have a, have, a, have a little diet for a few days. So, but God will test us sometimes by allowing something to go down to the, what I call the wicked end, you know, the, 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 the edge. To me, it was that, that last little thing of spaghetti. And in that one moment, there was, there's been milk moments and other moments, uh, but uh, so many other testimonies. That was just one. But he says, he goes through this whole thing and he tells them, if you gather it and you keep it in your tent, that it's going to turn rancid and it's going to have worms. Right? So verse 18, he tells them, I'm going to just skip on down. It says, when they measured it with a, an omer, uh, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every uh, man gathered as much as he should eat. God told him how much. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until the morning. It says, but they did not listen to Moses. He didn't tell them why. He told them, let no man leave any of it till the morning. Right? You think, okay, we trust you. God said, will provide it every day. Don't anybody keep any till the morning because God's going to give fresh in the morning. So notice how he doesn't give them the full information. Right? Again, right here. And he says, but they did not listen to Moses and some left part of it until morning. And it had bred worms and become foul and Moses was angry with them. It stunk up. We know it wasn't the bread that had a life span because when they would on the one day they'd gather for two days and it would be fine right so it wasn't the bread wasn't the problem it was the faith they didn't trust him the very first thing god did when he took him out of egypt was to was to develop them in trusting him every single day trusting him every single day that means that he said, I'm going to make you utterly dependent on me on the most practical thing for 40 years. And that is your breakfast and your dinner are dependent on me. He brought quail in the evening and he brought bread in the morning. And they weren't allowed to keep any for the next day, which was going to teach them one thing. 
God will provide for you daily if you trust him. Right? It taught what Jesus said. That each day has enough trouble of its own. You can't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God will provide for that. Elijah learned that lesson. He's running around hungry, out in the wilderness. Who pops up? An angel, right? Then what happens? And, and feeds him. And then he keeps on going. He makes it to the mountain and then the birds bring him meat. I mean, if you say, yeah, but that, that's Elijah. God can do it today. God wants to do something magnificent to provide. He can. He's not restricted by any, in any way. The, the goal is for God to teach them that they needed to trust him daily. To trust his faithfulness, to trust his power, and to do something unique. Manna from heaven, it was like this little thin honey cracker in the morning that was very nutritious for them. They said it tastes like honey. And on the other hand, um, meat in the evenings. And he did. And so they got to know him. And he forced it upon them. And sometimes, if you prepare, let's say, um, I, I, Chris, I can use you as an example. You, Chris just moves here. He's got, um, you know, to figure out where he's going to work, and he's got to get this, and he's got to get that place to stay, so forth and so forth. Let's just say Chris puts out 10 places to go get a job. And eight of them look promising, two of them don't, and five of them end up calling him. And they're, they, they're, they're telling him, oh, this is great, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> come, come interview. And then each one falls away. His hopes get up high. All these prospects. And he, all the time he's saying, God, please make my path straight. God, open the door for me. And then eight doors open. And then every time he tries to go through one, he gets kicked in the chest and is knocked back. At the end of eight doors, what should his result, what, how, how, what, what should he say? Should he say, oh God, why do you keep shutting the doors on me? No, he just prayed that God would shut the door and make the path straight. That's, or should he say, praise God. Praise God. You have, you have the job for me. I trust you. I'm just going to keep searching. I'm not going to sit on my hands. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep praying, keep thinking. And look for the one that you have for me. And every time one shuts, I always say, when a door shut, you definitely, that's like the hallelujah dance, praise God moment. Right? No matter how beautiful that door looks, no matter how magnificent it looks, praise God, because that's definitely the one God saved you from being tempted by. It's like saying, God did not lend me into temptation, but delivered from evil. Okay, shut six doors. You're like, wait, hold on a second. I, <laughs> I didn't want those doors shut. You said, keep you from temptation. <laughs> You can't pray on the one hand for God to lead your path and make it straight and, and shut doors and open doors and then get upset and doubtful whenever that happens. Just because you want it. You wanted that one. To go to seminary, not just cost us the house, it costs everything. Like my, my cars and everything, everything we had. We sold everything. And we just had a little bit of U-Haul with a couch and uh, a few pieces of furniture and a lamp, I think. 
And uh, we, I, I knew that I, you look for God's doors to open, right? Certain things have to happen, obviously, for you to. But you got you got to have enough to get started. And for us, it was a silver thing. Uh, I had to be accepted to the seminary. I was. That was a miracle in itself. It's a story in itself. I had to sell everything, get it, get it ready to go. And then all we had enough money for was the first, somebody paid for the first semester for me. We had a month and a half's worth of, for food or like in electricity. Basic needs. Basic needs. Yeah. And I had paid up the first and last month's rent. So that was it. And that was all the money we had except for like, you know, the money to get there and the, ga- and the gas money to get there and to pay for the U-Haul. So we didn't have enough money for, for anything else, really. We got in the U-Haul, we drove out, had the apartment, because we got down on it, it was accepted, I had to pay the first. Seeing God go ahead of me, he, he made it clear, yes, I'm gonna pay for your tuition, get you in a, the apartments there, everything's lined up. And then it was like, okay, but I don't have any money, we don't have a job, I don't have a car. But I'm gonna go there, and the worst thing gonna happen is, I made, I, I made a mistake. But I was sure, I hadn't, because my heart, it was clear, and all the things had lined up ahead of me. There were things that God was doing ahead of me that I just had to, I had to meet him there. And, and I said, well, I was confident that God would provide a job for Beth. And at the time, I said the, the absolute least we could possibly survive on was $13.50 an hour. You know, absolute survival mode. And, uh, and, and so I said, but don't even start looking when we get there. I said, let's get settled in. We'll go do some stuff. And I said, well, you need a job on in two weeks so you can look in 13 days. So I expect God to just work it out. I'm not going to sweat this. And then the first day she went in, the sim wife was working at this place. And anyway, and she had went on with um, tech, who was it? It was, I don't know, some temp agency. And they hired her on the next day from the day that I needed her to start. That's the day they hired her on. They hired her on for $13.50 an hour. Two weeks later, they bumped her up to $16 an hour, I think it was. And then uh, a few months later, they doubled your pay. It was like, it went up to 20 something, 30 bucks an hour. But the Lord just boom, boom, boom. And we, we got a car, you know, and as soon as she got started, we got a car. In other words, the Lord just, but he didn't say, here's how it's going to happen, right? But he did go ahead of me, and he did pave the way, and he made it clear for me. It wasn't to, always like that. Like, no, sometimes it wasn't like that. The other there. times where he didn't pave the way for me, it was, like it was you're, you're, you're just taking what I call shuffle steps in the dark <laughs> so you don't fall off a cliff or bash your toe against something, you know? Because <laughs> you, if, you, if you run in the dark, you're going to end up getting injured. But... Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's one way. Another way. How do you how do you how do you trust the Lord? Well, how do you depend upon Him? Half the room here is young people. You wanna you want a wife? Want to get married? You want a husband? Want to get married? If you want to, if you want God to to give you this fantastic person, then you have to prepare for them, right? You can't ask God to give a man a refined daughter of him without being prepared to know what to do. 
It, would you imagine just waiting for God, waiting for a company to come to you all randomly? Hey, I'd like for you to work as an engineer at this, this firm. You go, uh, but you need to go to school first. Or, or No, you, you go to school in faith. You put up the money in advance. If you want to be an engineer, you put forth the education you need to become skilled at it. Then, even though you're not even skilled, you're just educated. This is what marriage is. You, you only get educated. Then you start your job and you realize how much you don't understand on how to implement it, right? But you at least have to have the base knowledge and understanding of what your responsibilities are in order to be married, which means first and foremost, presenting your own flesh because if a man is supposed to wash his wife with the word and love her and help her present herself as holy and blameless before God, that means he's got to be able to do that to himself first or he's at a tremendous loss not being able to do it, if his wife needs counsel or help or, or, or building up in some way or another. Same with the kids. In other words, you have to prepare yourself for whatever you expect God to do. Or you can just, that's, that's a big one. People just do it their way. You know, be not wise in your own wise. Be not wise in your own eyes. They're very wise in their own eyes when it comes to, to getting into relationships. Well, I want it so bad that uh, they will sell out wisdom for it. And that's just the way the flesh is. Everybody's a victim of that. Everybody's a victim of that. And uh, getting into something that you're responsible to be successful at for the rest of your life, willy-nilly, is utterly nuts, you know? You're dealing with you're not dealing with a car you're out there polishing. You're you're dealing with a human being that's that's maturing and growing and struggling and developing and aging and, and you're having to adjust to all those factors. And are you do you know what you're doing? Right? There's a there's a there's an entire education to that. And it starts with knowing yourself, knowing how to how to love yourself, thus love others knowing how to present your body as living and holy so that you can help your wife wash her in the word and help her do the same or uh, same with a wife. It's like, how many wives, how many women today are really, really taught well on what it means to truly support a husband? If you just look at the, they, they, they depend on songs and movies and all that nonsense to teach them and, and they're, they're lost, so many of them. So, Educating yourself on what that looks like is tremendous. And then you will have God work with you. Knowing God is knowing his mindset. What it is to be a man. There's a lot of young men here, right? What is it to be a man? Because society will tell you. You make it up on your own. Or you can watch westerns. Or you can watch, you know, action movies. Or you can watch, you know, tough guy movies. Or you can watch thrillers. And you can try to figure out what is it like to be a man? Yeah, maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like that guy. Maybe it's like this guy. Maybe it's like that guy. Or you can study the fact that we're creating God's image as a man. Is woman, created, is woman created in God's image? No. Whose image is woman created in? Man's image. God, the man is created in God's image, not the woman. So God is the example for what it is to be a man. Look at how Jesus both stoically stood against people in, in a loving and strong way, definitively, and yet something was also very compassionate and strong, but he was always a man who walked by his own convictions, and his convictions were in line with the Father. So he was the manliest man. 
when it comes to manhood, right? Even, even though he sweated great drops of blood and didn't want to, to do, to go to the cross emotionally, what did he do? He dusted himself off and he got up and he went and did it. In other words, why? Because he was a man. A man is strong, he's definitive, he lives by his convictions, and he understands how to relate to the Father and lead his family. And so those things you learn from God because you know him. And so all of that is there's so much to discuss, of course. These are just, we're just dancing on the lily pads here. But, um, all right, well, let's uh, pray and then we'll have some time of fellowship and we'll eat. Father, thank you so much for this uh, time of, of worship. We pray that, I pray that we would uh, all find ourselves seeking to know you as a person, as, an, as a, a living being with conviction and personality and longings and with uh, passions. I pray that through that, we would learn to walk with you, that we would enjoy that walk with you, that you would enjoy us. I know that we're going to enjoy you in heaven and, um, and you're going to enjoy us as well. But it'd be good if that was happening here and that our walk of faith was pleasing to you. For as your word says, it is impossible to please God apart from faith and that whatever is not of faith is sin. And so I pray, Lord, that our walk of faith would be pleasing to you and that it would not be an error for us, but that we would walk in the happiness and joy and the peacefulness of trusting you in whatever, both the good and the tough days, knowing you're faithful and you love us and that you're the creator and you're powerful and you're able to do all things good for us, <coughs> blessing us because you love us so dearly. We're your children. We're not like the Gentiles. And so we thank you and we praise you for that love and for your word to us that you've given to comfort us. Thank you for communicating that. And so we pray in Jesus Christ's name because he's worthy and we're not to bring this prayer. Because of him, we come to you. And because of him, we enter into your throne room. And because of him, we now are worthy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.